Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. Welcome to Listen In, a Bite Size Bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of Bite Size Bio webinars wherever you are. Hello, this is Adam Paulson welcoming you to this Bite Size Bio webinar. Today's presentation is titled Garbage In, Garbage Out, Sample Prep for Flow Cytometry and is being presented by Dr. Jessica Rowley from Imperial College London. Jessica Rowley is a facility manager in the Department of Life Sciences at Imperial College London. She has a background in respiratory biology and experience using flow cytometry and fluorescence activated cell sorting to analyze and isolate a rare pulmonary stem cell population. After joining the SAFB flow cytometry core facility in January 2016, she has sorted a range of cell types, including innate lymphoid cells, neutrophils, hematopoietic stem cells, and epithelial cells. Jessica is keen to learn novel applications and to help the facility's users to develop their experimental protocols. As always, we'll have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the top right panel of your screen, and I'll put them to Jessica at the end. Details on how to access the on-demand recording of this webinar will be sent to you by email shortly. So now over to you, Jess, for the presentation. Uh, thank you for the introduction, Adam, um, and thanks to Bite Size Bio for having me, and thanks to you all for coming along on a Friday afternoon when the sun is finally out. Um, yeah, my name's Jess, and we're here to talk about sample prep. So as we go along this uh, webinar, I want you to be thinking about your protocol and what are the steps along the way that you can be tweaking and optimise to generate a high-quality sample prep. So if you've done any kind of flow cytometry workshop before, you'll know this phrase. We say it all the time. It's the title of this webinar, garbage in, garbage out. And it's true, right? If you have a sample with a lot of dead cells, a lot of debris, um, a lot of clumping, if you've got a lot of background, autofluorescence, you're going to have bad quality data. And by bad quality data, what we mean is we can't resolve stained from unstained. We've got high background and the populations aren't obvious. So you need to optimise each step of your protocol to generate high quality data. Uh, so back in the dark days of lockdown, um, I got into baking bread, just like everybody else. And this was my first attempt. I made a big brick. It was disgusting. And what I'd done is just got any old recipe off BBC Good Food and some ingredients out of my cupboard that had probably been there for about five years and expected to get some nice bread out of the end of it. And obviously that was not the case. So what I did was go away. I read lots of different recipes. I tried to understand what each step was for. So, for example, when we're developing the gluten, we can use different kneading, we can knead by hand, we can use a stand mixer, we can do an overnight method. 
and trying to understand the impact of each of these steps on the outcome. There's lots of different things in the recipe that I can tweak. For example, I can have the temperature of the room will impact the rise of the bread, how long I leave it to rise overnight, a couple of hours, um, the temperature of the oven, if I'm adding any other ingredients. And after tweaking all of these different things, eventually, I got a really nice sourdough, it had all the big bubbles, it was delicious. Um, but if I then wanted to go away and make some focaccia or some pizza dough, I have to go through that whole process again and optimise each step for the specific type of bread that I want to make. And it's just the same with your sample prep for flow cytometry. Depending on what application or what your starting material is, depends on the protocol you're going to follow and what you need to optimise. So before you start, it's a good idea to collect um, all the information about what it exactly is that you're trying to achieve and know what the tools and ingredients are that you're working with. So first of all, what is your actual application? What are you actually trying to achieve? The example we'll be talking about today is immunophenotyping. It's kind of the gold standard of flow cytometry. But flow cytometry is not just one thing. There's lots of different applications we can do. So for example, if you are wanting to sort the cells rather than the cells after analysis just go straight through to waste, if you're wanting to sort, presumably you want to recover a viable population at the end. So obviously keeping your cells happy and alive is paramount here. What kind of flow cytometry are you doing? Is it conventional? Is it full spectrum? Are you doing something a little bit niche like cell cycle or apoptosis? All of these things are going to dictate what um, dyes and what techniques you're going to use. It's a good idea to pop along to your flow cytometry facility and see what cytometers you have. Um, there's no point spending all this time optimising a protocol if you then find you don't have the cytometer to analyse it. So what lasers do you have? What detectors do you have? Are there any niche features of the cytometer, such as um, absolute counting if it's a volumetric system? These are all things and pieces of information you want to acquire. And then you should consider what kind of dyes are fluorophores. So a fluorophore is just your fluorescent molecules. What kind of dyes are you working with? Because they may need to be treated specially. Um, tandem dyes, for example. If you don't know what a tandem dye is, don't worry. I'm going to tell you in a moment. But tandem dyes can be susceptible to things like fixation and heat and light. If you're doing apoptosis, you might be using an exin-5, which will bind to phosphatidylserine in the presence of calcium. That means you need to have calcium in your buffer at all times. And usually, when you're doing flow cytometry, you want calcium-free buffers to prevent cell-to-cell -cell adhesion. Are you working with fluorescent proteins? So this is things like GFP, M-cherry. Um, here's a sunset painted with bacteria transfected with lots of different colour fluorescent proteins. And some of these can be susceptible to different fixations, such as alcohol, depending on where they are in the cell. You should be adding a viability dye to your sample. Um, a common type of viability dye that we use is an amine reactive dye. We'll talk about this a lot more in a moment, but just be aware that, as the name suggests, it's going to bind to amines. So if you have protein in your buffer, you're going to get binding uh, get, that's going to affect the staining of your sample. So I'm going to talk about tandem dyes because if you're doing an aminophenotyping panel, you are going to be using tandem dyes and you need to know 
if your dye is a tandem dye and how to treat it to prevent it from breaking down. So tandem dye is basically two dyes coupled together. So in this example, we have PE, just get a pointer. We've got PE, which is excited by the yellow green laser. And then it transfers its energy to psi seven, which is a far red molecule. So we excite the donor molecule, PE, transfers its energy and the acceptor molecule emits. And it allows us to expand the amount of spectrum available to us. Uh, this was the other thing I was doing in lockdown, making NAF animations. So this dye is quite obviously named a tandem dye. It's called PE Psi7. But not all tandems are that obvious. So for example, your BV dyes, BV711, BV605, they are actually tandems made up of BV421 plus something red, something orange. And it's not obvious from the name that it is a tandem. So you need to go through each of the dyes in your panel and make sure you know what they are. Um, a lot of those dyes are also polymer dyes, and polymer dyes like to stick together, and that's something we'll talk about later as well. Um, so you've got, you know what kind of dyes you're working with, but where on your cell uh, is the antigen or the marker you're trying to stain? Most of the time we're working with surface antigens, but we may also need to get inside the cell and stain intracellular antigens in the cytoplasm, in the nucleus. And that's going to dictate what kind of fixation or permeabilization steps you're going to need. And then this is a, a part people forget a lot, but you need to consider the biosafety of your sample. So if you're working with anything pathogenic or any um, genetically modified organisms, anything from humans and patients, then you need to make sure that you're uh, following your health and safety guidelines. Um, so this might mean you need to fix your samples to render the pathogen inactive. Or if you're cell sorting, for example, cell sorting generates a lot of aerosols. If you've got um, a respiratory pathogen, like COVID, for example, um, it's going to be releasing aerosols and you could breathe them in. So you need to make sure that your cell sorter is at the correct containment level. So you can have cell sorters in a biosafety cabinet, for example. So once you've got all of this information together, it's a good idea to start looking at different protocols and start thinking about which steps you can tweak to improve the performance, to improve the outcome. Um, so a good place to look is actually a company website. So I'm gonna use an example from Thermo Fisher, but any of the flow related companies have these protocols. And you can also try methods papers. And what I would do is read through the protocol and think about each step and what the purpose each step is for. And if we think just like with baking the bread, uh, the general protocol is always going to be mixing some ingredients together, leaving it to prove, arise, leaving it to prove and then baking it in the oven. For our sample prep for flow cytometry, it's going to follow three typical steps. First and crucially, we're going to be developing a single cell suspension. We know that flow cytometry is single cell analysis. We can't just take a tissue and put it through the cytometer. We need to generate a single cell suspension first. Once we have our single cells, we can start thinking about staining. And then if we need to do some fixation and permeabilization steps. So I'm gonna use this one example throughout. And as I said, it's an immunophenotyping 
uh, example, but if you're doing something like cell cycle, that's going to be a very different protocol. So step one, single cell suspension. There's a few things I've highlighted here. We've got some mincing, we've got some enzymes, and we've got a little bit of pipetting up and down. The kind of uh, method you're going to use to generate a single cell suspension will depend on your starting material. If you're working with blood, you've already got a single cell suspension, not much else to do here. If you're working uh, with cell cultures that are adherent to the culture flask, then you need to find a way to detach them that leaves them viable and doesn't cleave your antigens. And then if you're working with more complex tissue like lung and bone marrow, you're probably going to need a combination of different steps and there'll be quite a lot of optimization in there. So optimization at this level is all about yield versus viability. If you imagine you have a complex tissue and you need quite a lot of harsh procedures to generate a single cell suspension, you might end up killing all your cells. So these are kind of a trade-off against one another. So you need to test different steps and monitor the viability. You can use Tripan Blue or you can use flow cytometry, in fact, to analyze the viability. Typically, we'll have steps such as enzymatic dissociation, typically using some sort of collagenase. But there's not just one collagenase. You'll need to try out different types. How long are you going to incubate it in the collagenase for? What temperature? And you may need to add other kinds of enzymes for more complex tissue dissociation. For example, thermolysin or papain. Um, Liberase is a company that makes different blends that come in different cocktails. There's like a little sample kind of thing. Um, so you can test these different sample kits and see which one works best for your tissue. Um, for lung and bone marrow as well, the enzymes is not enough. You're gonna need to have some sort of mechanical dissociation. In the protocol, we just saw that they were mincing the tissue. So with my lungs, what I used to do is take the lungs and use little scalpels to break into little pieces. I would add the enzymes then, and then I would triturate up and down through a syringe. For the bones, the bone marrow, we would have to actually get a pestle and mortar and grind the bones up, which is pretty grisly, but we need to do that to get the single cell suspension. We don't recommend that you use a cell scraper when you are trying to detach your adherent cells because that's going to generate a lot of cell death and debris. So just a reminder, the whole point of optimizing a sample prep is to generate um, a high viable sample and minimize the amount of debris, minimize the amount of clumping. This step is one of the areas where you can introduce a lot of variability. So if standardization is key for you, you may want to invest in some kind of um, a, a robotic dissociation method, um, which will have little programs for different kinds of tissue, and it will be a lot more reproducible than just mincing something uh, yourself. The problem with this is they're quite expensive and require a lot of consumables. So you need to weigh up what's important for you. Um, once we've done our enzymatic digestion and our mechanical disruption, we now need to make sure we're getting rid of any bone fragments or clumps. Um, so what I use is these cell strainers. They come in a range of sizes, 70, 100 micrometers. You put them on top of your tube. 
And then you can take the plunger from a uh, syringe and mush the tissue on top so that the, the tissue comes through into a single cell suspension into the tube. And if you're working with a tissue like spleen, you can skip the previous, the mechanical and the enzymatic and just mush it through the cell strain. It's very easy to work with. Something like colon is very difficult to work with. It's very hard to get a viable single cell suspension from colon. Hopefully, you now have a lovely viable single cell suspension. It's time to add, uh, time to resuspend your cell pellet in some sort of staining buffer. Now, when you read a protocol, it will often say something like flow cytometry staining buffer, it might say fax buffer, um, and this can mean a lot of different things. But most likely, it's variations of a single theme. Typically, you'll start with a base. Usually, we recommend PBS, and this should be magnesium and calcium free. So any ions like calcium, calcium and magnesium will cause your cells to stick together. And remember, we don't want cell clumping. Some people do use culture media to try and keep the cells happy, but a couple of things to bear in mind. First of all, they might have calcium and magnesium in them. Second, usually when you have your culture medium, it's buffered by the carbon dioxide in your incubator. However, when you're working on the bench top for several hours preparing your samples, it's not buffered. So the pH is going to change and that can be detrimental to the cell health. So you want to add something like heapies to keep the pH constant if you want to use your culture media. Um, and just be aware that when you actually come to run the samples on the flow cytometer, you don't want it to be in culture media anymore because you've got phenol, which can be autofluorescent. You want to resuspend it in a PBS-based uh, buffer. And then I mentioned um, polymer dyes. This is another reason you need to know what kind of dyes you're working with. So those BV421, um, the brilliant dyes, they're all polymer dyes. And what polymers love to do is stick together. So most companies will provide a staining buffer for use with their polymer dyes, and that prevents those dye-to-dye -dye interactions. And we'll see this come up again uh, shortly. So you've got your base, PBS, and then you want to add some, some uh, ingredients to the base to keep the cells happy. So FBS is a common one, so it's going to keep the cells happy and it can also prevent non-specific binding because it's a protein. Uh, just be mindful if you're doing cell sorting, you don't want high concentrations of FBS here. It can promote the cells to stick together and it can also cause extreme instabilities with the sorting. An alternative could be BSA, it has a similar kind of function, but it doesn't cause the cells to stick together in that way. So usually you'll add some kind of protein, be it FBS or BSA. Um, EDTA is an ingredient we definitely recommend adding. Um, this will mop up any cations and again prevent a cell to cell adhesion. And some people add sodium azide. This has the function of preventing antigen recycling and also uh, preventing bacterial growth. So have a read about what recipes exist out there and see what works for you. If you've got a really harsh uh, treatment to generate your single cell suspension, you might generate a lot of dead cells. So there's a few treatments you can do to clean up your prep. Um, a good example is a DNA's treatment. When your cells die, they release DNA. DNA causes cells to stick together. We don't want clumps. A little DNA's treatment will go a long way to cleaning that up. 
You can also get dead cell removal kits. I've never tried these, but they exist. Um, and then if you're working with blood or any kind of tissue where there might be residual blood and you're not interested in red blood cells, it's always a good idea to do a red cell lysis. Um, so you add the buffer for a few minutes, neutralize it and just get rid of those red blood cells. So red blood cells, if you're interested in leukocytes, for example, the ratio of red blood cells to leukocytes is like one to a thousand. So you'd have to analyze a lot of cells if you have red blood cells in the mix to achieve the target number of leukocytes. Red cells can also be sticky and just mess up your um, data, especially on forward and side scatter. So we've got a single cell suspension. We've got our cells in a staining buffer that's keeping the cells nice and happy. The next step in this protocol suggests staining with a fixable viability dye. Let's first consider why we use a viability dye. So dead cells can be autofluorescent and they can take up antibody non-specifically. Um, both of those things will muddy up your resolution of your populations and can, can create false positives. The protocol suggests using an amine reactive dye. This is fixable. The way this works, it binds to amines, as we've said. You can have amines on the surface of live cells, so your live cells will be stained somewhat. But when your cell dies, it gets um, holes in the membrane and the dye can get inside and bind to intracellular amines. There's a lot more amines inside the cell than on the surface. So what you end up with is slightly stained live cells and much more stained dead cells. So things to pay attention to here, um, check the timing that you're doing your live dead staining for. In the protocol, it probably says 30 minutes, but in reality, that's usually a little bit long and you can end up with um, live cells becoming stained as well. So try a range of staining times. The, um, the advantage of these dyes is that they come in all the different colours of the rainbow. It's so easy to slot these into your panel, so there's no excuse not to use one. Just be mindful that you are staining these and then you wash the dye off. That means you're only staining, you're only getting a reflection of what is dead at the time of staining. Where if you're doing cell sorting, you probably want a more real-time reflection of the cell death. So an amine reactive dye is more for analysis, immunophenotyping, rather than cell sorting. If you're sorting, the option is to use a DNA dye. Now you can't fix with a DNA dye, so if you need to fix your cells, you must use an amine reactive dye. DNA dyes work similarly. They can only get to the DNA when the membrane is uh, permeabilized or uh, compromised. So you have unstained live cells, and stained dead cells. Uh, they don't come in that many different colours, maybe blue, red, green. Uh, DAPI and TOPRA3 are very common DNA dyes that we use for cell sorting. Just a few more points. Um, as we've said, when you, when you use an amine reactive dye, you don't want any protein in the buffer. So fax buffer, not when you're staining an amine reactive dye, use PBS for this. Your DNA dye you add at the very end of the protocol, so you don't wash it off. So you will stain all your surface antigens, wash them off, and then add your DNA dye about 10 minutes before you're ready to start sorting. And the uptake by dead cells will be real time. 
Once you've stained with your amine reactive dye, you can get your cells back in the fax buffer, the uh, staining buffer. And here it says stain cell surface markers. Um, and then it refers to another protocol, which I'm showing down here. And we've got a few things to pay attention to here. We've got some washing steps. We are blocking FC receptors. It recommends a staining volume of 50 microliters from a cell concentration of 10 to the 5 to 10 to the 8. And we're also blocking dye to dye interactions. So when it comes to staining, this is another area where you can introduce a lot of variability. So you need to try and um, standardize this process as much as possible. And one thing that is key is the volume that you stain your cells in. So I used to stain in 100 microliters. Uh, the protocol we're following says 50 microliters, but you need to keep that constant. So what I would do is work out how many samples I would have. Let's say I've got five treated, five untreated, that's 10 samples. And I'm staining in 100 microliters. I would make up a master mix of all my antibodies in one mil plus 10%. And then I would resuspend my pellet in 100 microliters each. And that way you're minimizing the amount of pipetting um, and it's a lot more um, standardized. As I said, you wanna keep the staining volume constant. So you can actually stain quite a big range of cell concentrations in one volume. So in the protocol we just looked at, it said 10 to the five to 10 to the eight in 50 microliters. I would stain one million to 10 million in 100 microliters. It's the antibody concentration that's important. So the concentration of the antibody in your staining volume. And within that staining volume, you can stain a range of cell concentrations, but that's something you need to validate. At some point, there will be too many cells to be stained at this concentration. So you need to validate what range is possible, but it's quite a broad range. At some point, you will need to increase the amount of antibody if, once you reach a certain cell concentration, and that's something you need to test yourself. And then, of course, you have your staining conditions. Um, how long are you going to leave them to incubate for? The kind of classic is 20 minutes at four degrees. Um, but there's a few protocols these days where you stain with less antibody overnight, and that might work better for your time, um, for your work-life balance as well. So these are all things that you can tweak and optimize. Pay attention to the data sheet for the antibody as well, because they will tell you recommended staining conditions. We should consider the types of antibody binding. We can have specific binding, and what we want is specific binding via the epitope. But unfortunately, antibodies also have FC portions. And FC receptors, which will bind the FC portion, are present on a lot of immune cells like B cells and myeloid cells. And that is specific, but it's not what we want. So we need to block that. And then we know that proteins like to stick together. So we can get a lot of non-specific binding and antibody is a protein, obviously. Um, so the only way we can prevent this is by not having excess antibody in our sample. So first we can block our FC receptors. This is really easy. It's like a 10 minute step. You can buy FC block for human or mouse um, from most companies. This is a BioRed example. And we see here the control in red. Um, we have some cells that should not express CD11A. 
and we can see when we add the FC block, the uh, histograms are perfectly overlaid. We're not getting any staining. And when we do not add the FC block, we can see that we've got a shift in the histogram. So the uh, CD11A is binding via the FC portion. So block your FC receptors. This is usually done for 10 minutes before adding your surface antigens. And then um, to prevent excess antibody in your sample, you need to do a titration. And we'll talk more about titration in a moment. So titration is essentially, we have a range of different concentrations and we can see at some point, we start, start separating the stained from the unstained. Um, at some point we get a good resolution between the positive and the negative populations. But then as we increase the antibody concentration, we start getting a spread of the negative. And that's what we want to avoid. If we do have any excess antibody, we can remove this by washing. So by washing, what we mean is we add some fax buffer, we centrifuge, and then we resuspend. Now, if you're staining in tubes, you can add a good one mil of fax buffer and then do a little wash. If you're staining in plates, you can only add about 200 microliters. So I would do two wash steps there to remove any of those excess antibodies. Just a little bit more on titration. So as we've said, we have a range of antibody concentrations. So we have the stained and unstained. Uh, this data is taken from the flow repository. And you can put all your data in there and you can get data to uh, practice data analysis with as well. Um, and then we can um, draw gates around the positive and the negative and determine what is the fluorescence intensity, the MFI. So the MFI is the median of this population on the uh, fluorescence intensity of the antibody, the, the fluorescence you're measuring. So we can calculate the stain index to determine what is the correct antibody concentration. And we can take the MFI of the positive minus the MFI of the negative, divided by two times the standard deviation of the negative. And that's essentially the spread of the negative. So resolution can be defined as the distance between the stained and the unstained, but also the spread of the negative is going to reduce that uh, distance. So those two things are important. So when we have this high concentration of antibody, we can see that we have a lower stain index, and that's because we're getting that spread on the negative. As we decrease to 1 to 0 0.25, we can see we're getting a really nice stain index. So you could use these concentrations here. And if we continue to dilute, um, we're not getting optimal resolution of the populations. The whole point of flow cytometry is resolution of stained and unstained. And then again, we've said this before, but if you've got these polymer dyes, you want to prevent them sticking together. So all the companies will have a buffer that you can use to prevent this. It's not just a way for them to sell more stuff for you. It is something you should do. So that's cell surface staining. Um, then that might be it for you. You might be working with live cells. You might go onto your cytometer. But the next step of the protocol here is to perform fixation. And there's a few reasons why you want, might want to fix, and we'll discuss those uh, in the next few slides. You've got two main options for fixation for flow cytometry, uh, formaldehyde or alcohol-based, like ethanol or methanol. 
Um, so formaldehyde we most commonly use for antibody staining, such as immunophenotyping. Um, this is going to cross-link proteins. Um, it doesn't permeabilize the cells. If you're working with a cell cycle, you want to get the uh, DNA dye into the cell. But as we've said, that can't happen unless the membrane is permeabilized. So the alcohol fixation will permeabilize the membrane and get the DNA dye into the cell. And because it coagulates proteins, the DNA can get into the cell to bind the DNA really nicely and get a really good staining. And it also will have um, low data spread and you need a really good resolution for cell cycle. But it can change the conformation of your epitope, which means your antibodies won't bind. So typically alcohol for certain applications like cell cycle, but formaldehyde for your antibody based staining. So reasons for fixation. Number one, um, you've done this really long staining protocol, sample prep. You've been in the lab since seven in the morning. You don't want to be there till midnight running your samples on the cytometer. If you fix them, you can come and run them the next day. If it's Friday, you can probably even come on Monday and run them. Another reason, of course, is if you're going to be performing permeabilization, you need for intracellular staining, as in the protocol we're following, you'll need to fix and then permeabilize. And the final reason, as we've already said, is biosafety. So if you're working with pathogens, you'll probably need to fix them to render them inactive. Unless you have a cytometer that is uh, capable of working at the containment level required. So we have one cell sorter at containment level two. It's in a biosafety cabinet. Um, that means we can sort things um, that require containment. Um, we also have a cytometer in a biosafety cabinet, which means you can analyze live airborne pathogens. But you need to know what the biosafety is and make sure the fixation actually renders the pathogen inactive. So we have single cell suspension, we've stained our surface antigens, we've fixed. Now we need to do some intracellular staining. So there's a couple of things here. We are permeabilizing the cells. So that means punching holes in the membrane so the antibodies can get inside. And then we add our intracellular antigens. So again, where in the cell are your antigens? We've done our surface staining, but do you need to just get in the cytoplasm or do you need to get inside the nucleus? If just inside the cytoplasm, you can use more gentle methods, um, saponin, tween. In the nucleus, uh, need something a lot harder like Triton X. And just bear in mind what this is going to do to your forward and side scatter of your cells. It's not going to look as pretty as before permeabilization. Luckily for us, most companies will sell kits, optimized kits, depending on the application you need. So I recommend starting with those. And just to touch on a couple of specialized protocols, um, such as cytokine uh, production or phosphorylation. So you can get antibodies that will only bind phosphorylated proteins. So there's a few things we need to consider here. Firstly, we need to stimulate the cells. We need to induce cytokine production. We need to induce phosphorylation. Now, usually if you, if you um, stimulate cytokine production, the cytokines are released into the media and then you need to do an ELISA. That's not what we're doing. You need to trap those cytokines inside the cell. So you can use a protein transporter inhibitor, something like Rifeldin. 
Um, and this is a kit from Thermal Fisher using a phosphostat antibody um, where we have control in red and stained in blue. And we have treated with a range of different cytokines and we can see that IL-4 induces phosphorylation of STAT-6. Um, with phosphorylation as well, you'll want a positive control. So in this case, you would use interleukin-4 as your positive control. Because there's so many steps, how do you know you've not just done something wrong rather than it's not phosphorylated? Um, and then this is where it gets a little bit tricky. Um, you need to think about the order of staining. In the example we've used, we started with surface staining. We did our fixed perm and then we did our intracellular staining. But remember I said that fixation and permeabilization can affect your tandem dyes, so it can perhaps cause the tandem dye to break down or get more leakage from the donor molecule. So the example we used, PE Psi 7, you'll get PE emission instead of Psi 7 emission. So you need to know what effect the fixation and permeabilization has on anything that is in any fluorescent dyes that are in your sample when you add those buffers. You can use different uh, dyes if they um, don't like the fixation or permeabilization. You could take your unstained cells, fix and perm, and then add your surface and intracellular. But you need to be careful that fixation and permeabilization doesn't affect the structure of the epitope because then your antibodies won't bind. So you might want to test different way rounds of doing this to see which gives you the best staining. And finally, um, if you're doing a specialised intracellular staining like phosphorylation or cytokine production, you need to make sure that when you add your surface antigens, it doesn't stimulate phosphorylation because then your unstained, then your untreated control is going to have phosphorylation. And that's not what you want. So test all of these things out. So finally, you have a sample and it's stained with all these lovely um, antibodies and you're ready to analyze them on the flow cytometer. There's a few more things you want to consider. So usually we keep things on ice, we keep them in the dark to prevent the fluorescence from bleaching. And one key thing we should all be doing is filtering our samples. Um, we can check the sample quality and the fluidic stability by plotting time versus any parameter. And we should see a nice even signal like this. However, if we see fluctuations like this, we can't use this data that's below here. We'd have to exclude that from our analysis. And the last thing you want to do after you've done all of this staining, you've run them on the cytometer, is remove half of your data. So prevent these microclogs from going through. This is caused by microclogs and you want to stop those from happening. Um, so good sample prep, making sure you're not getting clumps, making sure you don't have dead cells and filtering your sample. So ideally you do this just before you put them on the cytometer. It needs to be through a 40 micrometer membrane. So the easiest thing you can do is get these fax tubes. It has um, a little membrane, it's 40 micrometers. You filter it through there and then it's in the tube ready to go on the cytometer. And most people do this just before they put it on because otherwise your cells are sitting around, they can stick back together again. Um, before we looked at these cell strainers, this doesn't count as filtering. These are two big pore size, 70 micrometers, 100 micrometers. 
is too big. Your needle on a fortessa, for example, is like 100 micrometers. So you're still going to get a clump that could even block it. And you're definitely going to get these microclogs. So 40 micrometer membrane here. So hopefully now you've got some excellent data and you're off to do your data analysis. Uh, just to finish up, I just want to touch on another couple of factors um, on more kind of specialized protocols. So first is if you're doing something, if you're doing cell sorting or even analysis and you're working with a rare population, if you think you have a rare population in your sample, the majority of cells in your sample are cells you're not interested in. So if you're cell sorting, that can take five, six hours to get through the amount of material you have. And your cells are not going to be very happy after sitting around on ice for six hours. So rather than putting the entire sample through the cell sorter, you can remove the cells you're not interested in. So one we've already discussed is lysing red blood cells. If you've got a sample that's got blood in it, just lyse the red blood cells and that's going to uh, decrease the amount of time spent on the cell sorter or the flow cytometer. Another option is density centrifugation, for example, if you want to isolate PVMCs. So we um, perform a FICOL spin in a centrifuge and it separates out the uh, phases and we can remove the PVMCs. Uh, this is one I used to do, magnetic isolation. You'll get a little kit. It has some antibodies conjugated to some magnetic beads. In my case, I was using CD45 positive antibody because I wanted to get rid of hematopoietic cells. So you've got your cells labeled with these magnetic beads and you put your tube into a magnet and then any of the tubes that have these beads on will, will stick to the side and any of your um, unlabeled cells, can you can tip it out and you're getting rid of all those labelled cells with the beads. Um, so what I would be left with then was the mesenchyme, which contained my mesenchymal stem cells. And this meant that my sorting time went from maybe six hours to maybe two hours. Um, and you can buy these kits and they have lots of, um, lots of different ones you can buy. And you can even buy ones where you conjugate the beads to the antibodies yourself. Um, and another consideration you'd want to think about is if you're working with small particles, so bacteria and really small particles like nanoparticles and extracellular vesicles. So these are all at the lower end of the detection range of a flow cytometer. And there's a couple of things you want to consider here. One, it's very difficult to pull these small particles out from the background. Anything in your sample could generate a signal, bubbles and debris. So if you can label them with something fluorescent, that's going to help pull it out from the background rather than relying on forward and side scatter. And these really small particles won't even have forward scatter. Um, so we always recommend if people are working with bacteria to use a transfected protein or some kind of fluorescent dye. You might also want to consider using a flow cytometer designed for working with small particles. So we have a nano flow cytometer, which works for anything below one micrometer. And we also have um, a flow cytometer, which has a small particle board. So it's not as specialized as the nano flow cytometer, but it, it does work fairly well for those larger small particles. And it works very well for bacteria. Um, any of your buffers could contain things that could generate a signal and make it difficult to pull out your actual particles from the noise. 
So make sure all of your buffers are filtered through a 0.22 micron membrane. Um, and the, finally, the, the risk is that if you have a high concentration of small particles, you can get swarming effects. And this is where your particles will go through in front of the laser and they'll come up as one particle when really it's multiple particles. So you need to be confident that you have a single cell uh, concentration. So what we recommend you do is a serial dilution and then you use some kind of counting method. You can buy uh, counting beads if you've got a cytometer like a Fortessa, or if you have a cytometer that's volumetric, it can do absolute counting. So it can count the number of particles per microliter. So use serial dilution in conjunction with um, some sort of counting. And at the point where you decrease your dilution by tenfold, your count should decrease by tenfold as well. And at the point where this matches up, that's where you have your single cell concentration. So hopefully, as we went through that, you were able to think about your actual sample prep uh, that you want to do and what kinds of things you can be doing to tweak um, and get the best outcome. Um, so that's the end of my presentation. And then I we have a couple of quiz questions that will hopefully generate a bit of discussion so we can have a bit of chat amongst ourselves. Well, thanks, Jess. Uh, that was an excellent uh, presentation, packed full of great advice and tips. So uh, fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, so um, uh, we do have a, uh, quite a few questions from the audience. So um, again, if anyone has any questions, please uh, pop them into the questions box on the top right panel of your screen. Um, for those of you asking, um, again, details on how to access the on-demand recording of this webinar will be sent to you by email shortly. Um, yep, so we'll go to the first poll question, and um, uh, here we go. So, which of the following is not uh, required to prevent unwanted binding when staining with uh, FITC or APC? Uh, and the answers are um, FBS, BSA, FC receptor block, BD horizon, brilliant stain buffer, and washing. Um, okay, so uh, while you're answering that, uh, we'll go to the first uh, audience question, and we'll just go straight to the audience question. So the first one, um, uh, Jess, so this is from Kevin Janik, says, who says, uh, can you speak to the impact of over-perpetting on cell viability on how and how to optimize resuspension without compromising your sample? Um, so you're worried about overpipetting on the health of the cells. I mean, you would just need to test this. Um, if, like, when you're overpipetting, um, what do you mean by that? Like, you're pipetting up and down, or you have a lot of wash steps where you're pipetting to suspend. Um, yeah. yeah, you would need to. Um, you just need to test it. Mm -hmm. um, okay. All right, great. Thanks, Jess. Um, so uh, let's have the results of that first poll up then. Um, can we please? Okay, so Jess, uh, do you want to speak to that? Yep. So we said, which of the following is not required to prevent unwanted binding when staining with Bitsy and APC? Um, and so one, this, this can have multiple answers. Um, so 
Actually, no, there's only one answer on this question. Yeah, so those of you who said the stain buffer, you would be correct. So Fitzy and APC, they're not polymerized, so they're not going to bind together. But you should be considering having protein in your um, buffer to prevent uh, non-specific binding. You need to wash off the excess antibody. And if you've got myeloid cells in there, you need to be using the FC block as well. But it's not a polymer dye, so you don't need to use that dye-to-dye -dye interaction block. Thank you. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Right. Uh, so we'll have the next poll and then we'll go to another, another audience question. So the next one is, uh, when should you titrate an antibody at the start of a new experiment when a new antibody lot is used, when significant changes are made to the protocol, if an antibody of the same clone but different fluorofluor is used? And uh, we'll go to the next audience question then, uh, Jess. So um, the next one's from Anthony, who says, my lab uses a EGFP TD tomato system frequently, and a member of our lab has been demonstrating how to do compensation for these experiments um, as the emission spectra overlap somewhat. Can you elaborate? Um, so this is not really a sample prep question. This is to do with compensation. So there's lots of tutorials out there you can watch on compensation. Um, but in brief, when we have um, a fluorescent dye, it has a range of emission. Um, and oftentimes those emission will overlap with one another. And if we're using a filter to pick up those emissions, um, we only want to be picking up emission from one fluorophore in each filter, but because of the large emission spectra, they will be spilling over into the different detectors. So in order to do compensation, you need to know what each colour by itself, colour is a fluorophore, you need to measure each colour by itself and see how much emission is detected in each of the other filters and account for that via the process known as compensation. Um, but I, there are plenty of webinars out there on compensation. Um, I definitely recommend watching some of those. Um, Flojo has some really good tutorials on performing compensation as well. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Right, so let's have the results of the second poll then uh, up. Okay, Jess, do you want to speak to that? Yeah, so this was the one where we have lots of different, uh, where we have multiple answers. I would say pretty much all of them, you should titrate your antibody. Definitely at the start of a new experiment. Um, often when a new antibody lot is used, because the lot-to-lot -lot variation can be quite significant, definitely if you make a change to the protocol, because it might increase the expression of the epitope. Um, and um, I would probably just check if I'm using a same clone, but a different fluorophore, that I'm getting the same uh, separation between the positive and negative. Okay, great. Um, okay, so for the next poll, uh, which viability dye could be used for performing cell sorting on HEC293 cells expressing GFP and stained with APC? Topro3 dye, DNA dye, DAPI DNA dye, zombie aqua, amine reactive dye, and cytonine DNA dye. Okay, and um, then we'll go to the uh, next question. So actually quite a few from this particular uh, uh, audience member Taha, Tara, sorry. Uh, so it says for heart tissue, do you suggest using a needle to process cells, as you mentioned, with lung tissue uh, to further dissociate after enzymatic digestion? 
Um, yeah, good question. So I'm imagining heart tissue is has a lot of kind of matrix and things like that that you need to dissolve. So yeah, I probably would triture it through a needle. So you do your enzymatic digestion and that has a good job of breaking down all of the matrix, but then that little kind of mechanical procedure that you use will just help kind of disperse them if they're still kind of sticking together. Um, but as with everything, you want to optimize all of these different things. But I would probably recommend trying it, yeah. Okay, great. Um, actually, so just a uh, follow-up there. Uh, um, also, do you add the polymer dye, uh, brilliant dye uh, buffer initially into the flow buffer you use in the initial steps or do you add it only when adding the antibodies? Yeah, good question. So if you think about it, you're trying to prevent those and those um, polymer dyes from sticking together. So you need the, uh, when you have make the master mix with your antibodies then you need that in the, uh, the special buffer. And then when you're doing your staining, but then after that, your cells are stained, they're not going to together at that point so you can use your facts buffer. okay great right uh, so let's have the results of that uh, third poll question up then jess ah brilliant so this was a little bit of a sneaky question because i am i am presuming some knowledge of the emission spectra of these dyes um so you might not have known that but if you were designing your sample prep for real, you would obviously go and look at your emission spectra of the different dyes. So for those of you who selected any of the DNA dyes, you can have a little point because what I said was when you're doing cell sorting, you need a DNA dye um, because you want a real time reflection of the cells that are dead. Um, so the one we wouldn't want to use in this case is the amine reactive dye because that just gives a snapshot of what was dead at the time of staining. Now, um, what you might not have known is that GFP is green and APC is far red. So Torpro 3 is a far red dye and it emits in the same region as APC, so you couldn't use those two colours together. And Cyto 9 is a green dye, so you couldn't use that with GFP. So DAPI, which is blue, will fit nicely in that panel there. So these are all the kinds of things you'll need to be considering. Okay, great. Okay, so um, uh, on to poll number four. Um, you want to perform cell sorting on a rare cell on a rare population ILCs from infected lung tissue. Which of the following considerations are not important? Lineage depletement, red cell lysis, FC receptor blocking, and fixation. And uh, while you're answering that, we'll go to the next audience question. This is Ellen Schneider. Do you have any experience working with samples from a biorepository that were sorted in minus 80 degree or minus 150 degrees C? Um, so I don't personally have experience of this, but I have worked with people who do work with these kinds of samples. So um, obviously you can freeze cells down so that you can work with them at a later date, um, but that can generate a lot of cell death. Um, so you need to make sure that your freezing method um, keeps them happy and prevents cell death at the time of freezing. Um, a, a girl I was speaking to the other day, she's working with samples that have been frozen and she found that performing the DNA's treatment made uh, a really good sample prep afterwards because to remove all of the DNA that had been released that was sticking the cells all back together again. Um, so you want to not only optimise the freezing down process um, but assess the health of the cells as they as they're thawed um, and maybe perform some treatments to uh, improve on that. Um, 
so yeah optimize both of those steps there okay great thank you um okay and we'll have the uh, the results of that uh, fourth poll question up now okay Jay, <laughs> over to you uh, yes, so which of the following considerations are not important? So a few things here, we're doing cell sorting. Um, so we want live cells, so we don't want to fix them. We're not going to have anything growing afterwards if we fix the cells. Um, but I can see why you might have said that, because I did say they were infected. Um, lineage depletion, yes, absolutely, because we are looking at a rare population in the lung. So there's going to be loads of cells in there that we're not interested in. So if we do a lineage depletion, we'll get rid of all of the cells we're not interested in, and that will leave us with a much smaller sample, and our cell sort will take a lot less time. Same for red cell lysis. When you're processing lung, there's probably going to be a little bit of blood kicking around, so get rid of the red blood cells. And you're going to have myeloid cells in there, so you need to block the FC receptors. Okay, great. Um, and on to the final poll question, and then we'll go to another audience question. Which technique will not help prevent microclogs? Filtration through 70 micron mesh, uh, EDTA, DNAs treatment, calcium, magnesium, free PBS. And uh, so then the next question is from Tomas Kovacs, who says, thank you for your presentation. Would you, uh, how would you stain extracellular vesicles with antibodies without repeating ultracentrifugation? And how would you avoid detecting antibody conjugates with your EVs? Um, so I can't comment on the first part of the question. I've um, not really worked with extracellular vesicles, but I can send you some protocols if you uh, contact me. Um, for the second part of the question, to prevent antibody conjugates, so this is when your antibodies are sticking together and at that level you'll be able to detect them, um, you can spin the antibody down and that will uh, centrifuge them so that will uh, make the conjugates come to the bottom of the tube and then then pipette your antibodies after that so that prevents you to, from taking up the antibody conjugates great thanks Judith and uh, let's have the results of that final poll question up then okay oh brilliant yeah so um one of the biggest things we're trying to achieve with sample prep is uh, preventing cells from sticking together. So EDTA will mop up free ions that can, that can cause cell-to-cell -cell adhesion. DNA's treatment, as we've said, will mop up free DNA, which can cause cells to stick. We should have calcium, magnesium, free PBS. But 70 micrometers is too big. We need to filter through a 40 micrometer membrane. So well done. <laughs> Excellent. Right, I think we've got time for one more question then. So um, this question, what is the difference between BSA containing fax buffer and a FCS, FBS containing fax buffer? And can we use them interchangeably? Um, yeah, people do tend to use them interchangeably. I think one of the considerations I, I mentioned was um, for cell sorting, we would recommend using... Uh, oh, wait, sorry, you're saying... FCS and FBS. Oh, one is fetal calf serum and one is fetal bovine serum. I think, yeah, in, sorry, no, you are asking between BSA and FBS, yeah. So, um, yeah, for cell sorting, you probably don't want to use FBS because it can promote the cells to stick together um, and can cause the stream instabilities. So I would use BSA in that situation. Um, 
but I think FBS might keep yourselves happier in some situations. So again, see which works better for you. Unfortunately, the answer to most of these questions is um, test it and see what works for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, right. Well, uh, there we go. It's. Uh, um, uh, I think that brings us to the end of the webinar. So, uh, Jess, thank you again. That was brilliant and uh, such a great discussion as well. Um, and finally, thank you to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. Um, so, until next time, good uh, bye from all of us. Good luck with your flow experiments and your research, and uh, see you next time. Thanks a lot. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar or to browse the Listen In series, please see the episode description for links. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. 